HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Square. If you run a restaurant or business, Square has the tools to help you stay connected to customers, shift your business, and navigate this uniquely challenging time. Learn more at square.com slash go slash great nation. HRN is offering complimentary business memberships to 50 Black, Indigenous, People of Color-owned food businesses this summer. The deadline to apply is July 31st. Each business membership of $500 value is an advertising opportunity that will allow businesses disproportionately impacted by COVID-19 to connect with HRN's listening community and promote their work. To apply and review the terms and conditions, go to heritageradionetwork.org B-I-Z. Welcome to The Grape Nation, your weekly wine journey. Our guest is Miguel de Leon. We'll talk to Miguel about why now is the time to talk about change. I'm your host, Sam Ben Ruby. Stay with us for The Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We bring wine to the people. Miguel de Leon is a restaurant and wine professional of color living in New York City. He has worked his way through some of the finest dining rooms in the country, including Chez Panisse, Momofuco, Casa Mono, and Per Se. Miguel is currently the general manager and wine director at Pinch Chinese in Soho. Miguel's advocacy, allyship, and voice have become an important, timely, real, and accurate voice for the industry and life. Welcome to the Great Nation, Miguel. Thanks for having me, Sam. Miguel, because of the continuing COVID-19 virus, we're doing a remote broadcast via Zencaster. And are you in New York? I am. I'm, I live in the East Village. Um, okay. So it's a, nice, it's a nice social distanced walk over to work every day. Okay. All right. So I, I can't assume, you know, everyone we're talking to knows who you are. So what I want you to do is spend a few minutes giving us a little background on your journey in life and wine that ultimately got you to where you are, which is Pinch Chinese, and also, um, which drew a lot of people's attention, your recent timely writings. 
Sure. So um, take me well, to we the can current. Get we can get started from the very, very beginning. Um, I was born in Manila in the Philippines. Um, I went to Jesuit school. Uh, my parents divorced when I was very young, so I was really only uh, kind of interacting with my father's side of the family up until I moved to the United States. I moved here when I was about 10. What year was um, that? About 94, 94, 95. Okay. Um, and I was the first person to go through American schooling in my entire family. Still, wow. still am actually right now in, in, in okay. terms of our immediate branch, I guess you could say. Um, so I started kind of uh, Americanizing myself um, through that. So to go from, you know, an all boys Jesuit school to like a co-ed public school in California, that's a that's that's called a culture shock, number one. Sure. <laughs> but it's uh, I think it also kind of opened my eyes to um, a very different um version or a vision of youth, um, and, and especially being American. Um, after going through the middle school and high school process in Southern California, I got accepted to go up to school at UC Berkeley, um, at, at which point my, my mother was basically like, you're a grown up now, you should pay for everything. <laughs> uh, so on top of getting a, on top of, of having a full student load, um, I was also working two jobs. Uh, one of those was as a tour guide for the university. Right. Um, and then the second was as a reservationist at Chez Panisse. And kind of that's where things really started in terms of my restaurant life. It was a really, really lucky break. It was my first restaurant job ever. Um, it was also one of the best places ever. Yeah. Uh, there, there's, there's a, there, it's a big family. And I think like we continue to, to speak about ourselves who our alumni of that restaurant as family. Um, so that really gave me a, 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 an interesting context into uh, food, food politics, and kind of the, the immediacy of the experience as something that's necessary for um, experiencing pleasure in a way that was also for survival. Right. Um, so as a, I started as a reservationist and then kind of pretty, pretty quickly, months in, they needed bodies on the floor. Uh, I ended up bussing tables, then kind of doing a little bit of everything in the restaurant for a stint there. I was helping out in a pastry kitchen um, and kind of just ended up doing literally a little bit of everything. Um, about a uh, couple years in uh, and after I received my degree at Cal, I went to New York, um, didn't know what I was going to do. Uh, and then uh, realized that like I had a really great uh, restaurant resume just for being at Chez Panisse. So my first job. Why, out of the why was, do you why do you bolt out of California so quickly, and why New York? Uh, New York, particularly because I wanted to kind of see what was com just completely different. I wanted to do a, a I wanted to live in a city that was just completely different from San Francisco and and I mean Berkeley for its for for all of its charms was to me felt like a super small town, right. especially coming from from. Uh, LA and coming from Manila, really, where, you know, it's 13 million people kind of like crammed one on top of another. <laughs> I wanted to kind of sense a little bit of that again. Right. Um, and so New York, like, heated the, the call. I was also kind of, I was moving out um, to New York a little bit because my, uh, my then fiance was here already. Um, right. So I moved out pretty quickly after that. So good reason. Uh, yeah, not, not too bad, I don't think. Yeah. Uh, and then after after moving here, uh, kind of one of my first jobs out of the gate was at Per Se. Um, and then got realized very quickly that maybe wearing a, uh, suits while I was serving people wasn't the right thing for me. 
um, and went on to uh, a, a firebrand restaurant group called Momofuku pretty, pretty swiftly after that. Um, and then kind of did a little bit of everything for that restaurant group as well. Um, then Casamono came calling, uh, really cut my teeth in terms of natural wine and Spanish wine at Casamono. Right. Um, and then uh, three years ago, was really presented an opportunity that I couldn't say no to, which was Pinch. Um, when somebody approached me, Sean, one of the owners, um, approached me with an idea of, what do you think about doing your kind of wine with our kind of food? And I was like, well, it's my kind of food too, because my grammar is part Chinese. <laughs> right. So here we are. So um, let me ask you a question. Mm-hmm. So that brings us up to the current. You know, wine is something that is very important to you and something you're very, you know, much on the cutting edge and uh, knowledgeable about. Do you remember why and when you got into wine? You know, where wine there, oh, became yeah. the forward focus? I, I can count on a couple. I can count, I think, like a couple really key turning points for me. The first one was Jonathan Waters at Chapinese. Right. The way that he spoke about wine um, and the way that I ended up learning about wine through Jono was really just understanding that wine was for people and for pleasure and that you can get cerebral about it, but at the end of the day, if somebody doesn't like what they're drinking, it's not worth drinking. Um, the second person was Teresa Pow Pow when I was working with her at Momofuku. Right. Um, Teresa gave me focus and really uh, pointed a direction that was uh, really rooted in not just your personal point of view, but but also thinking about the list a little bit more holistically. She was one of the first people to kind of really push me in a way that was uh, uh, exciting, I think. For, I mean, for me personally, in that, you know, I was, at the, at the time, I was really just buying beverage like sake and beer. And then <laughs> wine was kind of, you know, it was just a necessity to have on the wine menu. Like at that, at that point, Noodle Bar, where I was kind of focusing my time on, had maybe, I think, 10 or 12 different sake, maybe six different beers, and then maybe one of each wine. Wow. A white, a white, a rosé, and a red. Exactly. And so by the time that she had come on, we had expanded the program a little bit to maybe about three, three, and three. And then uh, she was the one who really kind of pushed me to think about the relationships about what I was putting on on that menu. And I think that that was really exciting for me. At the same time, also at Momofuku, um, I came up with a really great and really supportive beverage network. It was Christina Turley. uh, It was Beth Lieberman. Um... Notice that it's mostly women here. <laughs> right. Um, nice to hear and, that. And I think that it's, I think it was really their, not just their their palettes, clearly, but I think that they, they had a really keen eye about how to edit things on the fly, whether or not it was with the pairing that was, you know, really subversive, or, or maybe it was something that was just uh, unexpected. Um, I was there when... Uh, the, the the team decided that uh, you know Ma Pesh, their the old Midtown restaurant, would open right. with an all Jura wine menu, and at the time that was kind of like the calling card, right? For for well, I guess like the pre natural wine revolution. Yeah, and I think that that was that was a that was a really eye opening experience for me as a as a wine professional to kind of be like, okay, if they can make these kinds of decisions where you can really shift and really kind of make tectonic moves for a wine culture in terms of what you're exploring. I think that that was the most exciting thing for me. And then Casamono was um, was really for, uh, was, was through Ashley Santoro. Uh, and, uh, you know, I get to call Ashley a good friend now. 
Um, but at the time I was like, I was so intimidated by what she was doing because it was, <laughs> it, I mean, it's so encyclopedic, that menu, yeah. you know, and it's still, it still continues to be good on those guys, but, um, small, at the time, small and strong. Exactly. And, 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 and at the time it was really just starting to champion the idea of Spanish national wine and like trying to bridge the gap between what Spanish national identity and kind of like just the geographical, um, kind of outcomes from that region were looking like. So that was really interesting to me that that wine became bigger and at the same time, much smaller in focus um, at Casamono. So two things. One, you got a good dose of wine exposure very, very <laughs> early in your career yes. at Panisse. And you were blessed to be surrounded by some great people. Now, because of Casamono specializing in Spanish, is do you have an affinity for that? Is that where you're really the expert or not necessarily? I mean, I would say that there's, there's something about Spanish wine that really speaks to me. Um, right. Part of, I mean, my name is Miguel after all, right? Right. right. My, my great grandfather was a full blooded white Spaniard. Um, so there's a little bit of a connection there. I also used to go to Spain a fair amount while I was working at Casamono. Um, nice. so it was to me there, that, that Spain itself just has a special place in my heart. Um, I think. not to romanticize the colonialism of it all, but I mean, that, that, that I do share an intrinsic part of not just, you know, my, my wine education, but myself personally in right. that space. Um, before we get into a multitude of things, I'm just curious with the uh, virus and everything, um, what you've been doing with yourself the past few months. You know, everyone's well, life changed. <laughs> I think it hit restaurant people the hardest. You know, what type of things, you know, have you been doing? Did you have to do work, personal? I'm very curious. Um, yeah. So, well, for work, nothing, it, it seemed like nothing really changed much except that, you know, our model from in-store dining moved away from that. And now we're just completely takeout and delivery. That's a, that's right. a definite um, change. Um, and then kind of talking, talking someone through over a phone about their uh, being a sommelier over the phone. That's a, that's a, an, an experience in and of itself. <laughs> right. Um, so th th those are the biggest shifts in terms of work. Um, did pinch did pinch go to take out early on or it took a little while to settle um, in and get it up and going uh, i mean we had always built a pretty solid takeout foundation from the beginning right. and it was just it was just waiting on the government uh i mean that's that's a that's a story we'll hear early and often um right. about about wait, whether or not we could kind of go back to work and continue to do the thing that we were doing so pretty quickly after especially after the stay at home um orders we were we were dubbed essential workers and we were kind of we were slinging food from the very beginning we only had to close a little bit and that was during curfew um right. after after the the first round of protests um right. and that was because we didn't really want to endanger any more of the delivery drivers that were kind of going around so for that entire week we were closed but right. for the most part you know kind of business as usual unfortunately um, well, personally speaking, yeah, personally speaking, I mean, I've, I've, uh, I've, I mean, clearly I've been doing a lot of writing. <laughs> we'll but, talk about that in a minute. Yeah. On the same time, um, uh, you know, we're, uh, just trying to find other systems and structures that we can kind of affect better change on. Um, and that's through either a, a group of friends or, um, maybe in some other formalized channels that, um, I can speak to you about later as well. Okay. Well, let's get into it. You know, we, we, it's fair to say we're experiencing racism, inequality, sexism, homophobia, you know, even brutality 
um, that we haven't seen in generations. I mean, I'm much older than you, and you know, this is these are life changing events. Mm -hmm. um, you, you've begun to address these issues in wine and in hospitality um, by recently writing, you know, at least those three significant pieces. I'll name them. One is actionable items for the wine community. The second is it's time to decolonize wine. And you wrote a piece called How to Dismantle White Supremacy in Wine. So I guess the first thing to set that up is who and what inspired you to organize all these thoughts on paper and get them in front of people? Um, the first one, the actionable items list, was actually um, kind of like indirect response to uh, Julia Coney's call to action. So she had posted something about um, the wine community having blood on our hands if we're staying silent. And I had, I mean, I had right. felt very vocal and very, uh, I think, supportive about, you know, Black Lives Matter ever since the beginning. Right. Um, but it, it got to a fever pitch, especially when, when you have nothing to distract you with, right? And in the scheme of restaurants, where everything, where you're putting out fires all the time. Like, this was the fire. Like, the restaurant can can wait a little bit. Right. Because now we're just talking about human decency. We're talking about just human lives. Um, and if we can't see past that, then what good is a restaurant, right? Right. So that, that was the biggest thing for me was that when... I, I remember I, it sent chills on my spine watching Julia kind of get mad because I was getting mad at the same time. And right. I was getting uh, just as... It just resonated. As Clearly, yeah. yeah, absolutely. And and um, kind of as a response to that, or I guess because of that talk, uh, a couple of friends of mine, so Cha McCoy, who's the beverage director at Cherry Bomb, who's based in Lisbon, right. and Zwan Grays, who's another friend who's based in Brooklyn, Brooklyn um, right. who's furloughed um, at Olmsted and Maison Yaki. Um, they had a conversation about, you know, well, what is it? What is it that we can do as women of color and especially as black women? to keep the conversation going. What is it, what is, why, did, why is this important to us? And she was like, well, well, both of them actually had, had mentioned, you know, maybe coming up with a list of demands on, on how to make things just better, just to be, you know, decent for everybody to right. feel like they're, they're part of the thing. And I kind of called Zwan immediately after they spoke about that um, and said, you know, I would, here's what I came off with, with that conversation. Um, I think I can condense it to something that's a little bit more salient. If you like, if you give me your blessing, I'd love to just run with this because at this point, you know, I had been speaking to a couple people at the same time, Jackson Rohrbaugh, uh, who's a master sommelier based out in Seattle, um, who I met at La Polay. He was voicing some kind of, some frustrations as well about, you know, the, the court kind of dragging their heels about like, right. Black Lives Matter and, and, uh, being silent movement. Yeah. yeah and and so you know i said well instead of waiting for them let, let's do something about this which is ultimately what i wrote about and and, and i think the the running thread for all three of the articles is i don't want to give anybody any more excuses about you know not not knowing anybody not having the right kind of resources not knowing what to do it's like it's it's really it's all right here in front of you and there is timeline set in how to dismantle white supremacy. I give, you know, you go by the week, month, do. year, yeah. something that you can do today, something that you can do next week, next month. And they're all small goals. And that's the point. 
is that these small steps, all these small actions add up to just a bigger a bigger shift, whether or not it's a cultural idea or whether or not it's just the, the treatment of each other as, as decent human beings. That was that was the impetus for it. And it's I think it's it's I think it's funny that a lot of people really responded to it in a way that was um, like it was eye opening um, because living as a person of color, that that's, you know, I go through that every day. <laughs> right. I go through a lot of that stuff every day and I go through. Uh, yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I experienced wine in a very different lens through a lot of people. Right. I, I enumerate as much, you know, and well, when I, so I want you to do this for me because I want to get into some specific points on the pieces, but mm-hmm. I, I hope you agree with me that this isn't a bad way to frame it. Can you, and, and you don't have to spend a lot of time, but can you explain the wine and hospitality world we live in now? which is why there has been such a reaction for the need of change? Is that a fair question? I mean, I guess so. I mean, I think we can speak about um, like the, the, the food policies and, and, and the state of hospitality that got us here. Um, it's, been, it's been dominated by, you know, men, first of all, white right. men specifically. Right. Um, and ultimately, that, that's, that's, a, that's an interesting chorus to keep saying, is that in every field... In every dominated field, it's always white men who are kind of touted as the leaders for it. Whether or not it's, um, you know, food uh, or wine or wine stewardship or, or even education, right. there's there's always an uh, an overlayer that you know whiteness determined this space because whiteness legitimized this space and it qualified this space. So it's it's we're already like you know three rungs from the ladder below just to be on just to be on the field, you know, we keep right. talking about, um, getting more seats at the table. And it's like the, the table itself was built on the backs of brown people. Right. And there's, there's no, there's no resolving that if we keep the system the way that it is, right. you know, tipping, tipping came out of what reconstruction to deny black people, you know, the accrual of wealth so that they wouldn't be paid a fair livable wage. And that's something that that continues to this day. It's something that we keep talking about as as why hospitality included is such a big part of restaurant culture's um, sea change. We're also not talking about, you know, the guarantee of like the fa- in, in, in other industries, how there's fairness for workers, whether or not that's through health care or through time off or sick leave or what have you. Um, that's almost FM- absent. Right. Yeah, in like, your industry? F- like like FMLA came to um, the, sorry, the Family Medical Leave Act um, came to the restaurant industry a mere five years ago. That's and it? that's we're, we're not even seeing a lot of it. I mean, paid sick leave came within just the past couple of years. Wow. Um, and that was because it was mandated by the city. And, and if those things didn't happen, then then how can we even kind of think about bigger structural issues that drive the rest of the conversation you know we can't we can't clearly talk about healthcare without talking about food politics we can i can i can barely escape talking about um msg <laughs> um as in as a person of color working in a chinese you restaurant. get hit with that a lot 
Uh, yeah, clearly. Uh, but but <laughs> okay. and, and that's and that's and that's a question that I want to keep posing, right? Is and then I will yeah. I will continue to challenge that question. So Momofuku gave me license to say that out loud, and I and I really credit Dave and the rest of the the restaurant family that I worked with at Momofuku to really give me that kind of not a not a chip on my shoulder, but really like a badge to wear. That right. if if you're asking me that question, I get to ask you more questions about it. Right. Yeah, so no if you're if you're asking me about MSG, I'm asking you about, well, are you allergic to Parmesan and tomatoes and mushrooms in every good an Italian restaurant? <laughs> do, I mean, and then when you go grocery shopping, do you do you consider every like all the salad dressings and all the snack foods that you buy? And right. are you you know, th- there's there's all these other layers that you're not considering. And it's because a syndrome, uh, a fake, a fake scientific study got attached to something like that. Yeah. That's um, interesting point. So, um, and, and but it, but it all goes it all it all goes back down to that. I think that you know we're not we're not considering the bigger picture every time we talk about hospitality. Hospitality in itself right now feels like it has been so commodified outside of the entire kind of idea of what a restaurant should be. Right? It should be restoring you. It should be kind of bringing you back to like a full level of humanity. And we're not. We're, we're commodifying that experience and not even that, but like tur- turning it into a, like a luxury space. But define for me or so I could, uh, you know, visualize it. What do you mean by commodifying? Like what's the commodifying part of the uh, I think to me, like if, if we, we devoid ourselves a lot of like the actual labor of how much time and energy and right. man hours it takes to, to make a plate of food. Right. Um, and, and, you know, in, in, in spaces, say, like, you know, 11 Madison Park or per se, at the, where we're operating at the, at the highest level of fine dining, you know, you're, you're also not talking about, like, the dishwashers who are maybe making a substandard wage, who we're not right. talking about the, the back of house staff who are not definitely not getting tips. And so right. we're, still, we're still kind of skirting around the idea that, you know, the, the idea of restaurants as a, as a fallback career has been... Oh, the, I have a, I have a lot of kind of baggage with that, especially with my parents. Um, but <laughs> you know, the, I was I was going to be a lawyer, or I was going to be an architect, or I was going right. to be an engineer, or or an airline steward. Exactly, exactly. Right. But but at the same time, you know, um, there's there's systems that we don't consider when we talk about food, when we or or even when we just talk about you know, say going to the grocery store and like not not having a face attached to the meat that you're buying right um, well all the suppliers and farmers exactly. and you know all of that which is you know is an incredibly important part of a restaurant so i guess i guess the overriding question is you know we can get into some specifics is how do we embrace the moment and turn it into real change i mean isn't now the moment or at least the beginning of a moment um it I mean, yes, <laughs> I will say that. Yes, you yes. are right in that there is a moment that's happening right now. I, I, I wonder whether or not the comfort of the moments previous trump this moment, and that's that's I, that's something that I can't say for. Wait, what do you mean? The moments. Else. Explain that statement to me. Um, I think the way that we think about restaurants and hospitality is rooted in an idea of white comfort. Okay. Um. I don't think that, you know, I, we're, and we're seeing this now in the throes of reopening and things of like phase two and phase three, right? Especially right. here in New York City, we're seeing that, you know, people are comfortable leaving their houses without any masks on just so that they can get their boredom out of the way. 
That is, I mean, that's a sign of privilege if I ever saw one. Selfish um, and privilege. But it's, but it's also, um, it, it, it addresses that idea of like, who, who, who continues to be the people who are serving? And why well, is you, it that... You've talked about, I mean, I've seen it on um, Instagram. You've talked about the guest and their responsibility. And, you know, mm-hmm. the mask is, you know, probably top of the list, but the list goes way longer, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely it does. Yeah. But, it's just, but, but, but again, it's like, is it actually the guest's fault or is it the system's fault? What do you think? I, I mean, it's a little bit of both. The thing right. that's easier to change is the guest. Right. I think the the easier thing to change is like someone's I- attitudes and ideas about something that seems like it could be like an, an easy change. It's 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 like telling somebody that, hey, if you eat meat, um, maybe have one day where you don't. That's a small enough change where it seems achievable right. um, and it, it has big impacts. Um, and so those are the things that I'm looking for as a as a as a person who's trying to see what the future of the system could be. All right, so what other what other actions, you know, and what systemic changes are necessary or real, you know, step by step? I mean, you address a lot of that in the three pieces. Mhm. What um, do you you know, like I said to you before the show, I mean, we could spend a day talking about yeah, this, but for I, sure. you know, I, I want to get your thoughts on, you know, the, the things that really ring the loudest. Uh, I mean, to me, like, think about where you eat your food and how you eat your food um, and understand the privileges that come along with eating food like this. You know, we're lucky that we're in New York and we have a, a really great abundance of uh, things like green markets and um, and you know, really great organic stores and really great. Uh, totally taken food, for just, granted. Just, just a great food supply. Exactly. But, but right. at the same time, you have, we have, we literally have neighbors who were maybe blocks away from us, less than blocks away from us who are going hungry because they can't seem to feed, you know, themselves. That's one. Or um, even just like find the right kind of food so that they can stay nourished and healthy. Right. So that's, it, it, to me, food equality and and the the food the, the the lines of food, especially if we're throwing away potatoes and milk in the middle of a pandemic, like the, that could feed somebody. That could feed a lot of people. We're not thinking about those things as restaurants. I think about you know the the food waste that happens every day, and and I think and especially working in a restaurant that does a fair amount of business even through the pandemic. You know, right? Um, I we never lowered our prices. But at the right. same time, there's always a complaint about our food being too expensive. And that's something that I want to keep addressing is that food should be worth what it's worth if it's going to make somebody's wage livable, if it's going to help make the system a little bit more equitable. I agree. Um, I think people say that just to say it sometimes. Yeah. And, and, you, you and but, until, but, until, but, but until you say it or until you experience it, I've heard many people talk to me about like why, why six pieces of our dumplings is $12. And it said, well, <laughs> there, there are chefs who spent their time and expertise to learn how to make this for over 14, 15 years. And they're here now <laughs> making this food for you. Isn't that great? Aren't you lucky? But I wouldn't, I wouldn't even say that it's about luck. I think it's about 
you know, cherishing the experience as a one-to-one thing. But again, there's a layer of racism there that we're not talking about, you know, like just because the food doesn't look white doesn't mean that it's not expensive. We're so happy to, to, to spend, you know, th- hundreds of dollars at a sushi place, an omakase place, say like Masa, where the menu can go upwards of $400 for Three one to person. to 500 where, yeah. Where you barely cook anything. Let's be honest. You slice fish and you put it on rice. Um, and why is it that somebody who's an expert on a walk can't get paid the same thing? It, right. it, it, it baffles me. Like we value, we value certain aspects of certain cultures and not others. When at the end of the day, you know, the, the longstanding history and tradition of Chinese cuisine, for example, has persisted for over 5,000 years. And, and that's something that we just take for granted, that it's supposed to be cheap. I don't, I don't, so, I don't, I don't think that that's right. So, you know, New York, it's so homogenous in so many ways. You know, there's a lot of money. There's a lot of expensive restaurants. Um, you know, how, how, again, does that go back to the consumer, the guest? I mean, are they just tone deaf to all of this? I mean, you know, oh, that's I mean, where change needs to, you know, we talked a little about that, but that seems to be more and more important. Yeah. I, I mean, I think part of it's also kind of like, you know thinking about the the media that's surrounding it um that's really important too when we look at the coverage of of new restaurants opening you know who's opening those places why aren't we celebrating the new places that are opening up in chinatown by chinese immigrants the same way that we're celebrating um another another mexican restaurant from another white person like why we're not we're not seeing those that kind of parody and maybe it's because they don't have the same kind of trendiness or cultural cachet or what have you but they're they're working just as hard, if not harder, to make and, a living and maybe and even more interesting, right? Exactly, exactly. Like, would would you say that somebody like a Jonathan Gold was good at exposing that? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I think so, and it's it's also kind of uh, investigating people. Like, I mean, I I love seeing Solejo's work over at um, the San Francisco Chronicle, and it's because she keeps reexamining and kind of reimagining the 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 could be's, the what ifs of restaurant spaces, if we gave people more license, more freedom to just be themselves and really challenge this idea of like, you know, same old, same old can't stand anymore. And, and the reason why is because it was, it was so, it was such an echo chamber of like white voice after white voice talking about white voice in food. And so do do you think, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. No, go ahead. Do you think, and I don't know when or how, or in what form, but, you know, as the pandemic, I don't even know if winds down is the right word, because we do you think <laughs> the world we look at as far as hospitality and restaurants is going to settle back to what it was, or the it voices depends. are going to be heard, and, you know, we're going to see some interesting change? Two two ways. What we just discussed, which is, you know, more attention to interesting food, more diversity, but also the people, you know, in the industry and, and the recognition, you know, for diversity. I think for sure. Um, I mean, we're How? seeing just I think we're just seeing like a very different set of decision makers come up right now. OK, um, that's and that's important. and that's and I think that that's one thing, right? Like you have people who look like me um, who are who are kind of guiding wine choices, which is. I think that that's a that's a win all around, um, right. but you're. I think you're also kind of going to see a big, uh, a big enough change. I wouldn't say that it's going to be a one hundred percent change, 
regarding this idea of, you know, changing guest behavior or uh, maybe instituting like a more livable wage and all that stuff, because that all comes with economic um, consequences and it all needs political will and political backing to kind of make sure that, that those things kind of continue to get supported. Right. Um, so uh, that's that's the bigger issue. Uh, I think that that there will be some changes, especially on the small independent restaurant level. Um, if we'll institute, if we can institute them as a group, I think that that there's already kind of talks of that happening, um, just so that we, we can make sure that there's a little bit more uh, attention paid to that uh, to those issues. Um, right. But but when it comes to when it comes to the bigger idea of like restaurants, it's going to be. I mean, it's going to be hard to just imagine sitting down at a restaurant again anyway because of the virus. But I think that there's there's going to be an, an, an even bigger difference about who is going to be occupying those restaurants on the employee side, because right. we're losing, you know, we're losing talent um, to places that don't um, necessarily uh, support, uh, I guess, like, B, you know, BIPOC or LGBTQ voices, right. um, sure. like, like restaurants do, um, right. or even, you know, even, even the same kind of interactions won't be the same. So there's going to be, that that changed for sure, but whether or not uh, it's it's going to make like a, a big cultural shift away from the the way that we've known restaurants, I think that that's a that think that's a that's a question for like the ten years from now rather than like yeah. the two years from now. I, I'm um, curious. Ha- Go ahead. No, I I mean I just think I, th- I just think that in in two years the the sh- the shifts are going to be they're big in their own way. You know, it's it's right. like advocating for alcohol to be when we can get over the whole prohibition thing and that happened a hundred years ago. Right. Um, we can we can we can start talking about maybe some liquor laws changing. Um, but I think again, it's 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 all rooted in that kind of pu- the the puritanism of 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 like the mythology of America. Do you think if you I don't want to pick on any one restaurant, but it's a good example. Do you think restaurants? like 11 Madison or other restaurants with wine lists, with trophy wines that people fawn over, will there still be that same enthusiasm for places like that? Or that's going to be part of the change? I think I heard or read somewhere, you know, even Daniel Hum is contemplating, you know, if this is what he should be doing, you know, when everything (laughs) settles a little. I mean... You know, keep on soul searching, Daniel. I'm here for you. Um, okay. But but for for I think for for the idea of trophy wines, and I think the idea of just like having extensive wine lists, I think the, there is a time and a place for restaurants like that, for sure. Right. You know, I won't I won't say no to a, to a restaurant that's going to try and have an encyclopedic depth and breadth of what they think are the best wines in the world. What what I what I think is going to change is the idea that that restaurants like that get ranked or rated in the system because I think that that's, that's very, very tired. And I think that that's completely irrelevant to how we should be thinking about the role of that kind of restaurant in a community. Right. Um, I, you know, there, there, there are, there are special occasion restaurants, which, which absolutely should do things like that if they want to. I'm not going to say no to you, what, you know, wanting to collect old Bordeaux because that's something that you love to do. But uh, I think the role of that restaurant is going to change completely. I, I, I don't think we're going to celebrate it as much. I think we need to kind of reconsider and definitely think about how we're going to interact with what we call these neighborhood places or these everyday places where we can, you know, see ourselves in there as a third place or a third space. Um, right, and there are way more of them. 
and we, yeah, exactly. And we build so much more community in spaces like that. Right. Uh, Miguel, we have to take a quick break for our uh, sponsors and we will be right back. We're talking to Miguel de Leon. This episode is brought to you by Square. You might know Square from their little white card readers, but Square has a lot more tools that can help businesses, especially now that they're having to figure out how to safely reopen and make things work in this new normal. So many are stepping up to the challenge, like Fifth Hammer Brewing in Long Island City. To adapt, Fifth Hammer's co-owner, Mary Izette, created a Square online store so customers could browse available beers, build an order, and safely pick up cans from the tap room. I was able to set up our online store within 24 hours of moving to a to-go model. The Square online store allowed Fifth Hammer to keep beer production going, serve their local customers, and retain employees. It's also very easy to train your staff on. They will be able to receive, fulfill, and provide your customers with a contactless pickup in no time. If you're a business owner, Square wants you to know it has tools that can help you shift your business, like Fifth Hammer is doing. No matter if you're brewing beer, baking bread, or mixing to-go cocktails, you can start taking online orders in minutes with pickup and delivery. And if you're selling in person, Square can help you accept contactless payments. All these tools work together and they're all in one place. You just need a Square account to get started. See all the ways Square can help your business right now by visiting square.com slash go slash grape nation. We're back. You're listening to The Grape Nation. Our guest is Miguel de Leon. Uh, Miguel, I wanted to ask you, why the wine and hospitality community has been so passive and silent up until now? I mean, I guess it takes, you know, a virus and incredible racial equality and brutality to open people's eyes. But, you know, why so silent? Um, I think I think it's two ways, Sam. The first one is that there's there's a there's the whiteness that kind of oversees a lot of like the interactions about right. two and four wine. When we talk it's sort about of an edu- obvious answer. <laughs> I mean, we're talking about like, you know, I mean, just to, just to, again, not to point fingers, but say the Court of Master Sommeliers, um, which is a majority white organization, which uh, claims that they're only an accrediting body. Um, they're, you know, they're, 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 their heel dragging was really one of the most disappointing things that I've seen because it's, it's, a, it's ultimately a community of people who are so passionate and so obsessed with this one thing that we love and we can't we can't all just say you know even even individually we can't just say hey black lives matter that's Um, the point right there i mean it's an accrediting organization but it's made up of people exactly exactly and it's at the end of the day it's people who who are I was having a really interesting conversation with my friend Anitha Gandhi, who's a sales rep at David Bowler Wines the other day. And she says, um, you know, I think I think one of the reasons why um, BIPOC are so vocal now is that we really feel like we have absolutely nothing to lose. And I hate to say it, but, you know, the the fact that that was kind of lording over us, whether or not it was a job, an account, a commission, that was defined by a white person or Fair that was point. defined by kind of like, you know, the how 
how accommodating we were allowing the whiteness to to take over that whether or not they did something untoward or unbecoming or just outright racist that there's there's not a lot of that kind of talk at the end of the day you know we're sommeliers are people wine directors are people and 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 we lose the humanity of of the i mean the joy of wine is that it's shared by people right and the joy of, of 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 drinking wine and kind of experiencing wine it was it's someone's point of view about the place that they're coming from and we we completely forget that when we start talking about the terroir and the technicalities of grape varieties. If we're so if we're so obsessed about the nuances of vitis vinifera, why can't we do the same thing with Homo sapiens? I, I agree. I mean, in how to dismantle white supremacy in wine, you end the piece with you know rediscover joy. You know, let's not forget why why we're all drawn to wine. Yeah, you know, we, exactly. we lose sight of you know so many other things. Um, I always have this fear that, you know, people have short memories, you know, that time will pass and things will pass and, you know, we'll resume some kind of normalcy and some actions will take place, um, but it won't be enough. And, you know, that same group of people will have control over everything. And I think in actionable items and how to dismantle white supremacy and wine, you know, there are very specific suggestions. You know, how do we keep mm-hmm. the fire going with that? Um, I think, well, I mean, you can kind of reference the pieces very, like in and of themselves, right? Um, for for actionable items, we say, or at least I say, you know, um, we have to continue to dismantle spaces that don't allow for everybody to be in them. Uh, it's the active participation in the disavowal of racist structures and systems that is a very clear and reachable goal for everybody. Now, the obvious just, thing is just to avoid those places, boy, not boycott, avoid, not support, you know, yeah, be but, vocal but, about. But, you but know, however you, exactly, but however you can contribute, that's still that's still going to the same place. You know, occupy the lane that you know how to occupy. Right. Um, and for for dismantling white supremacy, I think one of the easiest ways for me was to kind of really Let's bring joy back to this idea, right? Because when we take a when we take a rest, self care is a real thing. When we're talking about keeping the fight going for equality, is that if you're if we're if I'm not here for you, and if you're not here for me, then who are we? Are, am I here for myself? And right. and I think wine really helps us in in getting that back in terms of a recentering, refocusing, really beautiful thing, right? Like it's a it's. Uh, I mentioned in the piece, it's a human celebration of a human product. Um, and we, we tend to forget that when we're in the minutia of, you know, parts per million of sulfur or what have you. Right. There's, right. But, but, but there's it ultimately... It gets very nerdy. Like, yeah, but, but ultimately we drink it because we love it, we, because we like it, because we like how it makes us feel. And that's something that I think that we should continue to, to bring up. And that, that is not a, a, a cultural thing. That is not a one-time... One, one cultural thing because these these kind of like personal relationships that we develop with wine bottles and wines that that's something that's universal that's something that we can share with one another very quickly right Right. um the opposite of joy is anger to some extent um it's fear fear i think it's fear yeah i think you're right but i think people being angry is not the same as activism you know or being right exactly do you agree I mean, to a, to a fault, like, uh, you know, I think for, 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 for having lived with the state of things the way that they have, I think people absolutely have a right to be angry. It's just that 
those energies can also be used to make positive change. And it's not everybody who's doing that. Um, but for a lot of people who are feeling angry, they are doing the same thing that we've been doing about talking about the problem, addressing the issue, making making it so that people understand what the consequences are when they say these things and act this way and 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 all of that. So, you know, anger for sure kind of helps fuel the fire, but it's not but the don't be just angry. Exactly. Like ch- channel the, channel the energy into something a lot more positive, which is really directed towards change. One of the great things I've been noticing is um a lot of people a lot of you know very respectable people in the industry people like julia coney amanda smeltz leah jones tahira habibi you know they've really spoken out like you have about all aspects of these issues and i guess we can hope that people continue to do that because i think there are a lot of people listening do you agree Absolutely. Absolutely. And, I, and, I, and I'm again, like, those are all great names. Um, but notice how it's it, they're all women, too. Yeah, the, you know, it comes, it comes, but it comes from that, you know, my, my, my conversations with with Cha and Zwan, and then uh, other collaborators, um, Yerka, who is a manager at Ordinaire in Oakland, uh, Jade, who is a wine consultant for indie wineries, and a good friend Jasmine, who used to run Rodora in Fort Greene, you know, it's women, it's women who understand what this burden means and what this emotional carry means. Um, and they've been carrying it for so long, and especially as people of color. Um, you know, I, I understand my, my perks and privileges as a man and, right. and, and how I can be uh, literally in a boys club um, and, and kind of fit into that glove a little bit better. But you know, it's 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 taking, it's decentering myself from the conversation. It's kind of understanding the needs of everybody, and especially people who are not like me. Um, right. I think that those are the most valuable voices to hear because then I realize what my privilege, are, what my privileges are, and what my understanding is might not be the same thing. So you know, you know, to what? to to take sorry, but to take these perspectives and especially these perspectives of women who are leaders in the industry. I think that that's something that we should be carrying forward is that, you know, the writing can be angry, but, uh, and, and, and protesting can be loud and, and we can, we can all have feelings for all of this, but the people who are most centered in all of this in the entire kind of conversation is women of color. Yeah. And fortunately they are being incredibly active. Mm hmm. Um, you know, which is great. Um, just a selfless plug. Julia Coney is going to be on the show July 20th. She just launched Black Wine Professionals, and I wanted her to come on the show and talk about it. Um, Julia and I had an opportunity to travel through Uruguay about this time last year to taste the wines of the country. So I sort of got to know her intimately, not intimate in that way, but, you know, we were together for seven days. We stayed in a Mm -hmm. hotel. We had every meal. You really get to know somebody. And, you know, I was blessed, you know, that she became a friend. And I just think now is a great time, you know, for her to talk about. And then somebody like Amanda, who's been on the show, you know, just something happened to her and it compelled her, you know, to talk about her experiences about the industry and how smell related to all of that, Mm -hmm. um, which is a nice thing. Um, 
the the pieces that you wrote, actionable items for the wine community, it's time to decolonize wine, how to dismantle white supremacy in wine. Two of them, uh, how to dismantle an actionable or on medium. And I think it's time to decolonize wine is in punch. That's right. Um, I really want people, you know, if they've been inspired or made curious, you know, by this interview to really you know, put those articles in front of you and, you know, they're, they're very detailed and they're very specific. And, you know, Miguel and I really didn't have a chance to get into all of that. Um, but I, I really, you know, encourage people to do that. Um, I wanted to talk to you quickly because we're winding down, not yet, but soon, um, about pinch Chinese. You know, let's sure. close our eyes for a second and take a deep breath <laughs> and think about life before COVID. You know, Pinch was a, is a very interesting place. The food is spectacular. The space is great. And the wine list, you know, really has your name all over it. Tell me what you did, what you were trying to do, um, you know, what you'll continue to do. And, you know, that's a palette that you had in front of you that you could do what you want. Yeah, absolutely. But I think it's always, it's always supported um, and always uh, in conversation with the cuisine. That's something that I, I want people to really understand is that the, the wine list is, the wine list can look great, but it means absolutely nothing without that food. So that, right. that is something that I credit um, the, the space for. So the, the, the cuisine itself is really comfort based Chinese. Um, it's, it's, it's a mishmash of kind of like the greatest hits from a bunch of different regions. You know, you've got uh, ribs that are Xi'an style next to Cantonese style eggplant uh, sitting next to Peking duck, which is from the north, um, right. or Xiaolongbao, uh, so soup dumplings from Shanghai. So you, you're seeing kind of the, uh, kind of like, a, you know, if, if we were in a diner, for example, and I had a Chicago hot dog, a New York pizza, and some Southern barbecue. And I think that that's, that's a really easy way for people to understand. And a California okay, wrap. Yeah. Exactly. Right. Uh, an avocado toast, right? Right, and, right, and, like, right. Amer- Amer- America's a big country, but China's a big country too. Yeah, um, and 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 culturally speaking, also, like, with, with a lot deeper history in terms of what's been recorded. So the, the conversation for kind of starting the wine list from that perspective really came from a historical standpoint. I've been a history nerd for forever, but, um, you know, I got my degree in linguistics, uh, and and wow. that's always about you know how languages change and grow and how people and cultures respond to those changes. Um, so for me, kind of looking at um, uh, I guess like the through line of Venice, Germany, and Austria as kind of like the gate to or like gateway to the East. Um, you know, with the, especially with uh, Chinese history with Marco Polo, um, the Uyghurs over in Xi'an province. Um, and then kind of how close everything is to the birthplace of wine at Georgia. Uh, right. we, there, there's a really strong connection between the end of the Silk Road in China all the way to the very, very ends of Lisbon and kind of going out to the New World that way. So that's, right. that's the crux of the wine. The philosophy of the wine list has always been to kind of honor those relationships. Um, you know, we see cumin and fennel in our food and Chinese cuisine um, because of the Silk Road. And so what do wines along that look like as a response? Um, right. And so you'll see wines kind of uh, sitting sitting very happily in between, you know, in Hungary, in, in Georgia and Slovenia that are uh, really happily traditional. 
Um, And kind of by just by happenstance and by extension, uh, as minimal intervention as possible, uh, which is an echo to the treatment of the food. Right. We want uh, I think I think you can you can consider Chinese culture as one of the most, um, (laughs) uh, I guess, like paradigmatical examples of farm to table cuisine, talking about like ingredients, speaking about the best of their simplicity. Um, talking about seasonality and all of those times. So I, I think cherishing that, there's a Chapinese echo there, clearly. Um, and kind of it, it's, eschewing, uh, you know, geopolitical boundaries in the modern sense uh, to, to pay forward to the, the deliciousness in terms of the capability of what wine can do to a food that's been consistently overlooked by wine. And that's a Dave Chang um, through line there. Nice. All right. Let's um, stay on wine. I want to morph into our wine list because I want to uh, (laughs) pick your brain. Um, I ask all my guests the same five questions. Don't dwell on them. Um, You know, buzz through them. And I will post these because people love to hear what our guests are drinking and recommending. You could be a specific or general as you want you know we love when you recommend makers and regions and all that so the first question is with everything going on what are you drinking now what's in the fridge what seasonality is you know affecting what you're drinking um what Um, are you liking now (laughs) i i'm drinking a lot of uli stein's wines uh especially his rieslings from uh, the past couple of vintages, uh, but the new release of 2019 just came out, um, and that's also exciting. His wines just get more and more electric and more and more exciting the more I drink them. Um, Is that Stephen at Von Boden? That's right. That's right. Yeah, um, Stein. And, Great stuff. And I think it's it's really... Oh, man, like talk about wines that are made for Psalms, you know, like this is yeah. something that you can definitely obsess over very quickly. Well, German, Austrian wines are big Psalm favorites. Um, all right. Next question. This is the silliest question on the list, but a fun one. Do you have a favorite wine and food pairing? Does it yes. go back to the early day? What is it? Um, to me, it's Merlot. Okay, um, I remember it, reading that somewhere. Yeah. You know, uh, F a, sideways, a cor- right? Yeah, I mean, a quirk of the restaurant is that I've only served red by the glass. Uh, I'm, I've only served uh, Merlot as our red by the glass, and I have six selections most of the time. Give me uh, a couple that Merlot. you love. Um, uh, let's see. Uh, the Ruth Lewandowski wines by Evan Lewandowski. He just came out okay. with abandoned, the, this Cuvée Zero called Abandoned Meander. Um a really beautiful expression from the Finger Lakes by Kelby Russell over at Red Newt Cellars. Their nice. um, uh, their single vineyard Merlots are really, really beautiful, especially the ones from Glacier Ridge. Um, and you know, I I can't knock uh, California too much, but but I think that that's that there's a reason why I love it so much. And I think part of it was that, you know, my my mom loved drinking it in the '90s, and I still love drinking it. It had an effect um, on you. But yeah, exactly. But but to me, you know, my favorite pairing is is Merlot. Uh, but m- m- but more recently, I think Evans Merlot, um, with with like with like a nice steak, a really easy just put it on the grill, have some Merlot, especially if it's got a little bit of a chill. Nobody's mad at that. Nope, that's a good one. All right, think about not current times, but you know, you work crazy hours, but when you could. Your favorite wine restaurant and or bar, you know, who had the good environment, the good selection, the good vibe, the good knowledge? 
You don't um, have to be exclusive or inclusive. <laughs> you know, we're always going to leave people out, but you know, who's doing a good job? Sure. Um, I mean, we, we've spoken about a lot of them as, as personal friends of mine. You know, I love ponying up to Amanda's bar at Estella and just great, having great her pony whatever Food, she wants. chef, wine, Absolutely. What else? Um, and I would say, uh, I think most recently, or I guess more recently, um, uh, to get back to like something that's healthy-ish, uh, to sit at to sit out on the street at two three two Bleecker, and get taken care of by Theo and company. Um, yeah. But I think that's really really fantastic. He's cultivated a list there that uh, that he and I kind of see a lot eye to eye on these things. But uh, yeah, it's it's exciting I- to see kind of that kind of cuisine play around with those kinds of wines, especially. Yeah, I remember Theo at company. All right, fourth question. The question is favorite all-time wine. When I initially structured the question, it was sort of what you and I have been talking about. It's like, what's the trophy wine or the most expensive (laughs) wine you've had? The question through the years has morphed into what is the wine that is important to you that, you know, did something to you, you know, that over and over you still love? Uh, Jean Fouillard, Morgan, um, Cote de Pie. Whichever vintage, but the first one that I ever tried, I remember clearly, it was 2007. Um, and that was something that just really made me sit up straight, reconsider what I was doing with my life at the time, and say, I think this is the thing that I want to get into. <laughs> if you were here, I'd give you a big hug, because that's at the top <laughs> of my list, too. Um, I try yeah, to get as it, much as I can. And, the, you know, the regular Morgones ain't too shabby, either. No, exactly. Um, but that was definitely one of those wines that, like... Yeah, it's a, it's a make, wonderful makes wine. You, makes you open your eyes a little bit wider. Yeah. I saw color differently after that, I think. <laughs> there you go. All right, last question, and I think you could handle this one well. I want you to recommend... The best wine around 15 bucks retail. I want you to recommend a red and a white. You could be specific. You could do a region like Muscadet. I say this over and over. My kids are in their 20s. They can't go to parties or bring guests, you know, $9, $10 bottle of wine. They can't afford 40 So how are they impressing people, you know, with 15 20 22 bucks? Give me a red and a uh, white. Let's see. For the white, I'll, I'll do a little bit of a cop-out. I'll say Prosecco Colfondo. Um, What's Colfondo? That, is that yeah, a, so, uh, is that so the col, maker? Col, no, so Colfondo is a technique. Uh, literally in Italian, Colfondo means with its bottoms or with its lees. So it. it's Prosecco that's a little cloudy. It looks a little bit like a pre-made mimosa. But uh, okay. it, it has a much softer fizz. I think it has a really gentle fruit quality. And especially right now when it's 95 degrees consistently outside... That's something that you can just keep drinking and not feel horrible afterwards. All right, give um, me, I, we have a couple of minutes left. Give me a then, red. Uh, let's see. Well, uh, I'm, I'm never not one to buck, you know, Trollinger or Schiava, but especially if it's from Swabia, um, either by Jochen Beurer or maybe something from the Alto Adige. Um, not not the swill stuff, but definitely something that's been a lot of taken care of. I know yeah. you're not going to recommend swill, <laughs> but um, you know something something like Jochen Boyer's uh, electric Schiava, um, or his, or what he calls Trollinger, or maybe even um, Alois Legator's Rummigberg Schiava, which is really fantastic. Those are all terrific. 
um, answers. Like I said, I am going to post them on our social media. They'll probably show up Monday. We have to wrap the show up. If you have a question, suggestion, wine happening, event, or cause, hit me up at samatthegrapenation.com. That's samatthegrapenation.com. Subscribe to The Grape Nation wherever you get your pods. Follow us on Facebook at The Grape Nation, on Instagram at SBenRuby, on Twitter, BenRuby. Use the hashtag The Grape Nation on both. Like I said, we'll post Miguel's wine list on our social media sites. Miguel, if we want to find you on social media, where could we look for you and even Pinch Chinese? Yeah, our the Instagram for Pinch is at Pinch Chinese. Uh, okay, I'm easy. at Miguel D one. Um, so it's M I G U E L D one. And then exactly, and or you can follow me on Twitter at Miguel D. Okay, um, I want to thank our guest Miguel De Leon. Um, Thank you for your time. Thank you for all your insight. Um, I would love to talk to you again soon and check back. Um, Thanks thank for you having to me, and Thank you to our engineer, Amanda, and everyone at the Heritage Radio. I'm Sam Ben Ruby, and you've been listening to The Grape Nation. The Grape Nation is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. And thanks for listening.